0: Welcome
1: to another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources, where we shine some light on what's going on in your environment. I'm your host, Abigail Garfala. And I'm your co-host, Amy
2: Leffringhaus. Before we get started today, we wanted to talk a little bit about wildlife and how we should approach wildlife when we are in nature. And we here at Spotlight on Natural Resources podcast, want our listeners to know that while you're in nature, sure that when you see wildlife that you are appreciating them from a distance that's safe for both humans and for the birds and or the wildlife that you are viewing. Um, We really love you know wildlife. We are learning about some really cool birds within this podcast but we want our listeners to know um, that we should always appreciate our wildlife in nature
1: from a safe distance. So let's get started today today we are here with Michael Vera, the Avian Lab Manager and Field Coordinator for UC- University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign, here to chat with us about OWLS. Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Well, we're excited to have you. Um, this is kind of tied in with our Everyday Environment webinar series too, so um, as you all are listening, if you are coming and joining us from from the watching the webinar, then Welcome, if you are listening to this and you're like, I want to learn more about owls, then go check it out. It's going to be on YouTube soon. So um, we're excited to chat and get real nerdy about birds and owls. And so let's get started. So I said, I kind of glued into this already, but what types of birds do you study, Mike?
0: We study saw wet owls and saw wet owls are the smallest owl in Illinois. Well, they're unique in that they're uh, migratory. So they breed all the way up in the northern Great Lakes in Canada, and then they winter points all the way down like the deep deep south, like Georgia and and even uh, Alabama. And so that brings Illinois into the equation. So they're kind of a part-time resident in Illinois. So we'll see them come down, uh, their fall migration, and some will stay over the winter and then they'll pass through Illinois on their way back north. So, and the most interesting thing really about them is that Many people don't even realize they pass through, uh, they're just so small. They're so secretive and they're here for such a short period of time. So, um, really, really neat study, uh, uh, species to study. They tend to hang out in like these really dense understories. So really thick, early successional vegetation. So think like, bush honeysuckle, autumn olive, red cedar, multiflora robes, grapevine, you know. All the really fun stuff to walk through <laughs> when you're outside. Um and usually, all the
1: we're... species that we usually hear everyone's such a fan of too right. is what I'm hearing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Although this time of year, I mean, you know, red cedars have their use for some people as Christmas trees. So there is that, right? <laughs> True. But they're also used as kind of winter hangout spots for the Sauwood owls as they're just trying to hang out and <laughs> what they would consider a warmer climate uh, until they've moved further north to breed.
1: And so they like that thicker habitat is what you're saying. Cause like when you describe those, those to me are like often we don't like them because they create these thickets, right? Um, and yeah. so it, that's kind of the habitat you're talking about these sawwets like.
0: Right, it, it, it forms a nice safe refuge for them in a in an owl eat owl kind of world. So, you know, they've, they've got to be able to just hang out undetected in an area, you know, over the winter, you know, just so that eventually they can you know, head back north again. So it's just a, a short stop over a period for them. All
1: right. Wait, hold on. And tell me more about this owl-eat-owl world that we're living in. What does that mean?
0: <laughs> this is one of the more depressing things to talk about. So as exciting as it is to have sawwet owls on the landscape, they are a, a prize to target for other owls. So barred owls. Even screech owls, great horned owls, some of our owls who are year long residents in Illinois um, do prey on the species. And so unfortunately, they're they're at a little bit of a risk when they come down here to spend the winter.
2: Now, for our listeners, Mike, talk about the size. Are they, since it is owl eat owl, talk about the size um of these owls. And then do they are they do they have any color variations when they're, I guess, traveling through our area?
0: Yeah. So when we're talking about a songwrit owl, imagine an owl about the size of your fist. It's it's really a, a small bird as opposed to, you know, screech owl might be twice that size or barred owl several times that size and great horn, we're talking way bigger. So, and when it comes to coloration, for the most part, um, they do the, the young look very unique in that they're, they're very like, uh, almost a uniform brown and kind a of rufous color, but as they grow into their adult plumage, there's a lot more, uh, variations, a lot more of like a brown streaking pattern. And I think that helps in a lot of ways with camouflage. I, I can't tell you how many times I've actually tracked these owls to where their roost is and I could be three or four feet from them and not even see them just mm-hmm. because of the, the streaking, making it look like, you know, the brushes and brambles that they're actually sitting in.
1: I was going to say they've kind of had to evolve that way, right? Like they've exactly. had to. Uh, find ways to be as discreet as possible, and 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 maybe that's part of their size advantage too. Is like I'm small, I'm not seen. Exactly. Anybody.
0: And when that's when that's your adaptation, it's really important that you know you stay still. That so, oftentimes, you know, if if you approach an area where there's a roost, they're not going to flush until you basically almost touch them because they know as soon as they move that puts them at risk for being detected by a predator. So um, from a conservation standpoint, if you ever do know of an area where there is a sawwood owl, it's really important not to draw attention to it, and respect you know, the, the fact that it's just trying to survive and persist through the winter and, and, and not exactly to go out of your way to bother.
2: it. And again, the reason why they like those dense thickets where those larger, larger owls can't get into those areas so what what made you want to study these
0: owls then? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of different reasons. I guess from the, from the very basic, uh, you know, you think about owls and kind of the public side, and you think about you know Harry Potter and how it really popularized owls, and mm-hmm. and you know, owls are very charismatic. I think a lot of it has to do with just the fact that there's those two eyes, you know, facing forward in their in their head and. You know, reminds people of human faces, and and uh, so I mean, owls are definitely a charismatic species, um, and we've capitalized on this uh, in that we've displayed our research at public outreach nights, owl nights that we call, um, out at um, Allerton, but also uh, on on a more scientific research level, we started studying them because there was relatively little known about their distribution in Illinois. I mean, there had been some reports of individuals who had been observed randomly. Uh, but again, they're very secretive. I mean, and, and again, they do that by necessity. Another thing when it comes to bird watching, a lot of times bird watchers use audio cues to determine if a bird is present or not. And because these birds make very few vocalizations, the story that I always like to tell is of, and, and maybe you're familiar with this. Um, in 2020, they selected the tree for rock, the Christmas tree for Rockefeller Center. The it was like a 75 foot Norway spruce uh, from upstate New York, and, and they brought it, you know, 170 miles down to New York City, and took like three days, and they're unwrapping the tree, and lo and behold, there's a saltwood owl in the middle of it, oh, you know, and, and they nicknamed uh, nicknamed her Rocky, and of course she hadn't you know, eaten or had anything to to drink in, in days, so they, you know, they admitted her into the into the nearest wildlife clinic. But uh, I mean, that just goes to show how how little we realize they're there in plain sight. It's, it's just, you really have to be looking for them.
1: I remember that story. Like you just kind of tickled the edge of my brain, like being like, oh yeah. yeah, like I remember hearing about an owl, but like, that's so cool that like, this is why I find ecology so cool. Cause like, it's that whole story of like, yeah. And it's because of like their relationship with predation and and all of that that like why that culminated in this event of like us not seeing them and this accidental wildlife interaction and stuff and so that's that's so cool and also (laughs) poor rocky right
0: exactly
1: (laughs) i think that even with touching sorry just
2: to add on to that but even with um you know educating younger chill kids and students that things are happening in the wild that we can't see all the time. And it's not a storybook, you know, thing where you're going to go out there and you're going to sit and you're going to see all the happenings of nature. It's, it's happening. Whether we're there, whether we're not there, whether we see it, whether we don't see it, those, the concepts that we study in the class, you know, predation and, you know, all of the things it's, it's, it's happening. Um, And I think sometimes it's hard to like, to grasp that we want it to happen when we want it to happen, right? We want to see those, you know, that phenomena whenever we want to see it. Um, so it's just, I don't know, just being reflective, I guess, on on some of the concepts that, that we study and then, you know, it's really happening out there.
1: Definitely true, Amy. Yeah, I love that. I love it. Please always get on that soapbox. I love it. Keep it going. <laughs> I was going to ask too, though. So they're so difficult to find. They're so secretive. They don't really make much noise. How do you know that they're there? Like, how do you, what are some, you know, indicators that a saw or owl might be near?
0: Right. So, I mean, individuals can go out on the landscape and they can search. But as you can probably imagine, it's a pretty painstaking search. Again, I mean, if you target habitats like that during, you know, mid-October to the um, late late November, you know, you are more likely to encounter them. Uh, but the reality is, we didn't even know how prevalent they were on the landscape until we actually started banding operations. And during banding operations, we're actually using a lure to actually call them into our nets. So, um, and then once we've done that, we're putting a transmitter on the bird. So, you know, then we can go back and try to relocate and and hand track where the bird actually is. So. So we cheat a little bit. Uh, we've got a few tools at our disposal that aren't at the general public's disposal. But
1: I just love that it's like I'm. It's so evolutionarily good at its job. It's so at- adaptive that even like we're like nope. But we gotta we gotta reach into the depths of our technology. Um, and it makes me happy because I feel like you hear about some animals that like aren't very good at things sometimes. Like you're like like remember that I don't know if you all saw like on the internet a while back. It was like a a teeny tiny frog that was so small, it never landed well on its feet based on its size adaptation or something. And I was like, oh man, like a frog that can't jump. That's just sad. Like <laughs> so, <laughs> so, to up an owl that's small and really good at what it, it's meant it's to disgusting. do. It makes yeah. me happy. So, well, when it comes to researching these owls, what are you trying to discover, or um, find out when it comes to understanding them?
0: Right. So, I mean, to go to all the effort that we do, we're, we've got a number of different questions we're looking at. Uh, because they're found in Illinois during migration and kind of their winter stopover time, uh, our, fo- our questions tend to focus more on those times. So, um, one thing that we do is um, we try to determine the activity patterns of the birds during this time. So, how active are they? Are they just sitting in one spot? Are they moving around a lot, hunting, foraging? Are they doing it more like one time a day than the other, that sort of thing? So we put transmitters on the birds that pulse every 12 and a half seconds. And then we've got like seven towers with antennas at Kennecook County Park. And those towers are just constantly monitoring the area to pick up the, the pulses of these transmitters to see where the birds are moving, how much they're moving. And then also that those towers provide information about when the bird leaves to go further south or when it returns north if it stayed here for the entire winter. Uh, We're also kind of looking at further kind of characterizing the behavior of the owls regarding their vocalizations. So I mentioned that we draw them in to the nets using the lure uh, that the male actually uh, uses on the breeding grounds. They also make these kind of casu calls and these agitated wines. And, and uh, you know, very rarely do we actually hear that territorial toot in Illinois. So, you know, try to get at, well, why is that? And why aren't they making this particular vocalization, but they're making other vocalizations? Or why is it that they're being drawn to this male territorial toot when the birds aren't breeding here? It, it doesn't quite make sense. And then finally, we're really looking more into what we call migratory connectivity for solvered owls. So we're looking at the paths they take as they migrate north and south for the winter and back to the breeding season. These birds have been known to have very sporadic migration patterns. So typically when we think of birds migrating, we think of them migrating south to the Gulf of Mexico or points further south, like Central America, South America for the winter. And then they moved basically almost due north, you know, to get to their breeding grounds. While we have caught birds uh, that were banded in Minnesota and Michigan and Wisconsin, that would be expected. We also caught birds that were banded in Pennsylvania, which is for those of us that aren't great at geography, that's not north of us, that's, All right. it's weeks. east. <laughs> it's so, um, we, uh, the tags that we put on the birds, uh, we actually, uh, they're a special type of tag called a modus tag that's picked up by modus towers in a network across the United States. So in putting these tags on the birds, we're getting a better idea of the exact path that the bird is taking as it's moving north or south for the winter or the summer, or east or west. Or east or west. Yeah.
1: Right?
2: <laughs> so you're thinking that they're not following like the typical like flyway, flyways pattern made possibly? Or you're looking yeah, at that?
0: it It could be. I mean, there's a lot of speculation. The one thing I would say about um, our birds that were re- or relocated or refound in Pennsylvania is more likely what happened, because um, these were separate years. So, it's likely that the bird migrated down to Illinois for one winter, then migrated back north, but then the next year it migrated south towards Pennsylvania. Sure. Um, but again, when we think about those of us that are geographically challenged, you know, uh, you know what's the likelihood that you'd be able to return to the same spot you know, one, right. two winters in a row? Or... <laughs> right.
2: Although those hummingbirds, you know, I just can't hardly believe that. Sometimes it seems that they are visiting the same spots.
0: Well, that's a good point because a lot of birds do have very good navigational skills. Mm-hmm. And you will have, I mean, our lab also does work with whippoorwills, and mm-hmm. there are whippoorwills that come back to the exact same spot within, you know, uh, maybe 10 to 15 meters <laughs> uh, from one year to the next. Wow. And they're flying all the way down to Mexico and back, you know.
2: They're, I'm just gonna say they're just like us. Some are better at direction right. some <laughs> <I'm> are not. ones <laughs> on the other hand, they have they have <laughs> tiny right but directionally challenged, possibly.
0: And think about too, this is a small owl, you know, so it isn't necessarily, you know, an Olympic flyer in terms of, you know, uh, being robust and very aerodynamic. I mean, they they're still able to fly and complete their migrations, but um, I'm sure because of their shape and because of their, their structure that you know, migration is a pretty intense energy draining you know um, activity for them. And
1: I didn't know too if you, there were other trends that you were seeing too, or maybe things you can't speak on yet because you're still doing research.
0: Just as a teaser, one, one really interesting thing is that when it comes to the birds that actually caught in Illinois, um, 75 to 80% of them are actually females. So most of the males, it would seem, um, are actually staying at points further north or, as crazy as this might sound, staying on their breeding territory through the middle of the winter in the northern Great Lakes, which I can only imagine how cold, frigid. You know,
1: all the ladies are leaving where's the breeding happening <laughs> what are they doing there now i do have a question though so because you're using um like the male kind of territorial sound mm-hmm. as your like almost lure is that possibly like a confounding factor to like why you're seeing mainly females in the area like the males are there you're just not trapping them
0: right so that's a good point and we do catch males um in addition to females but Um, So it's not like we're just catching females. So the fact that it's still catching some males would indicate that there's probably not as much bias as we would think. Um, And kind of jumping ahead to, um, we're part of a collaboration called Project Alnet. So we're just one or actually two of over a hundred different stations across the United States and Canada. Who have kind of adopted this um, methodology. They're finding the same things even in areas where the sex ratio is just a little bit more even. Um, so it's, it's just very bizarre. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ooh, so cool.
2: A question about the transmitters or the tags. Do they once you put those on do they do they stay with the bird? I just don't know a lot about bird research but do they stay with that bird for the rest of its life?
0: So in the- perfect world, what we would do is we would create a harness that would have the transmitter attached. And as soon as the battery to the transmitter would die, the harness would fall off. Mm -hmm. We do our best to kind of time that to about the same time by using materials that eventually over time will naturally degrade. Mm -hmm. So using some natural fibers, um, as opposed to just like synthetic ones that are, that are meant to really keep it on. Uh, But as you could probably imagine, it's not foolproof. I mean, you've got different individual owls, you know, wear the transmitter a different way or go through maybe more rough and tumble than than another
1: Those are also those poorly directional owls as well. It's it's a correlation in my opinion. They're just... And
0: remember too, I mean, we go back to, they're hanging out in really rough vegetation. So the fact that they can snag and and, and actually fall off, um, it is actually pretty.
2: So while you're in the field, what what, is that, what does a day in the field look like when you're doing that research then?
0: Yeah, so it's usually a really long day, uh, even though the days are getting shorter usually when we're actually doing this. Uh, but that actually plays to our advantage because we're working with the nocturnal species. Mm-hmm. So an hour before sunset every Tuesday and Thursday from mid-October through the end of November, uh, we're going out, putting out mist nets, so mist nets are these like thirty foot long by like eight foot high nets that are are they they're they're like mist. It's it it almost looks invisible to the human. We've caught a few humans in them before, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and we catch them all. I
1: wasn't sure if you were going to go for humans. Yeah, yes. I was like, yeah. sorry, you've got humans at you. I was like, is he gonna say humans? Like in my head, I was processing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and the worst part is the humans that we tend to catch are the ones who know that the net is there, but <laughs> 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 but yeah. So we place 15 mist nets out in a call box at the center of it, playing that territorial toot. And then we'll check the nets every 45 to 60 minutes. And and we'll do that typically five to six hours a night. And, and when we get to the net, if there's owl in there, of course, we'll extract the owl from the net. And we put a band around the bird's leg um, so that if anybody else would catch the bird, they'd be able to know more information about where it had been. Um, and then we place a backpack harness with a transmitter on its back. We take some measurements, wing cord and tail length and mass. And then we can Hold age on. and- that's- Sorry, pause. Yeah. Did you say back- backpack yeah. harness?
1: Yes. Like backpack. it's not I was when you said transmitter, I was like, oh, it goes on their little legs. How adorable. Like, no, no. They're like going to school with a little backpack.
0: Exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, it's it's the, the transmitter is kind of attached to their back, but it's got like two little straps that go over the wings and then it kind of connects at the front. So I'm envisioning wonder pets. <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh and... you see in the dude yeah, you know, <laughs> with their little Mongols
0: on in there. <laughs> so, yeah. And then uh, once we age and sex it, um, the really cool thing, I guess, before I get ahead of myself, aging is really a neat thing. Uh, I guess with a podcast, you won't have a picture of it, but I can put this in the presentation. If you shine a UV or a black light on their wings, their feathers will actually light up bright pink, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Yeah. And if all of them are pink on the bird, that means that they're a hatch year bird, meaning they were just born in like May or June of of that year. Um, But then as owls age, well, all birds age, actually they replace feathers. And so um, if it's an older bird, you'll actually see gaps in the pink. So you'll just see like a dull brown feather and then surrounded by these bright pink. So the patterns you actually see on the underside of the wing with the UV light will actually tell you how old it is.
1: That's that's so cool. I love thinking about how we discovered that information. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like somebody was just like either accidentally, yeah, like I wonder what happens when we put UV light on it. Yes. And then, well, <laughs> that, it's bright like that.
0: So. I wish I could say I discovered that or that I was there <laughs> when it happened, but I wasn't, unfortunately. <laughs> so, and, and of course we release the owls and then, um, usually we'll come back later in the week uh, during the day and we'll go out with a handheld antenna and a receiver and we'll listen for those pings that the transmitter is actually um, creating at that specific frequency. And we just keep trying to walk the direction that it seems like the signal's coming from as it gets louder and louder. And we look like crazy, you know, all over in the brush and then binds to try to figure out, you know, this is actually still on an owl or if the or is it had it fallen off. Or <laughs> so.
1: so the transmitter isn't like always sending its location. You have to have like a receiver telling you like an owl is near essentially.
0: So, so it is always when you turn the receiver on, uh, well, the transmitter is always pulsing. And that's why eventually the battery dies on it because it's just constantly playing. Um, and that's also why we have the towers that we do because the towers are just automatically reporting those pulses twenty four seven. So we end up with a lot of data. I think I had like forty million uh, you know detections of these transmitters cut uh, and that's always what we spend this time of year doing is going through all of that data um, but we do have kind of an interesting playback experiment that we've been doing. So if, I go out and I find where an owl is actually sitting or roosting in a bush or a vine or whatever, um, I'll actually stand between the closest tower and the owl right around dusk. And then I'll play like an audio clip, one of those three calls that I'd mentioned earlier. And um, then we can actually see if the bird's moving towards the sound or away from the sound based on if the transmitter signal is getting louder or softer, whether it's flying towards or away from the tower. And then, of course, we look for you know, is the bird, uh, you know, making noises back at me or is it flying around? And there's been a few times where they've actually called back at me and it's real, been really interesting. Um, or even if I go back to the tower and I look, I can actually see the signal changing all the different antennas. So you can see the owl actually circling the tower, which is kind of neat.
1: It's like making calls back at you like, um, excuse me, this is my vacation. Yeah. <laughs> it's, <not high. laughs> it's supposed to be peaceful. Do you know what my summer life is like? Those boys never leave the <laughs> <boarding> grounds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. And and because we play different calls, we're trying to get at, you know, you know, what, what does this call actually mean? What function does it have for the app? So um, I'm sure well, we're already starting to get a little bit of indication that these calls, the owls do respond differently to them, so.
1: Well, so you mentioned OwlNet, that, like this larger network. Tell us a little bit about
0: Project OwlNet. Right. So Roger OwlNet was born like 20, 25 years ago, maybe, uh, when they were first starting to realize that they could use this toot call to actually catch someone else. Prior to that, nobody knew how to catch them. And, there was major information gap in, in the species, what we knew about it. And so um, they developed a protocol, standardized protocol that banding stations across the United States and Canada could use. Um, and then data is sometimes collected from multiple stations for the purpose of furthering our knowledge about the species. So if you have several stations, several scientists, um, whether they're citizen scientists or research scientists at institutions um, combining all that data and and trying to trying to determine more of, of what trends or patterns, you know, might be going on with this particular species. We have project omelet stations at Kennecook County Park near Danville, and then at Allerton Park near Monticello. Although in Illinois, um, there's also a station up at Sam Bluff Bird Observatory up near Rockford. And then uh, kind of one thing that this collaboration allows is to kind of help facilitate Larger projects, especially future initiatives. So, one big future initiative that we're planning on doing and participating in you know, is the deployment of over 300 transmitters in the coming year to actually track saw owl migration across their entire range, uh, from you know all the way over in Nova Scotia to British Columbia, down to California and Georgia, even because uh, there's a lot of unknowns, and we have a full network of MODIS towers to be able to pick those birds up as they migrate. So really a large scale effort. Most years we only put out um, at Kennecook um, maybe about 20 transmitters, but we're limited in just by you know, the number of volunteers and, and the cost of the transmitters. So doing this on a much larger level gives us more data and gives us more ideas of what actually is going on as we try to piece it together.
2: Is owl net specifically um, focused on sawwet owls or?
0: It is. Yep. Just on sawwets. Um, and one of the big things we're trying to figure out, again, you know, how prevalent are they? Because when it comes to um, species, a lot of times we want to know, are they at risk? Are they right. are they endangered or threatened? It's really hard for these species where you can't really detect them by just walking outside and looking and listening.
1: Yeah. That's one of those things that, you you know, you realize when you become an adult, I guess maybe- This isn't everyone who realizes this, but, you know, you can't just be like, how many insects are there in Illinois or how many how many coyote are in Chicago? Like, that's actually a lot more difficult to to uh, get a number on than than people think. And so exactly. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Mike, for taking the time to share your knowledge on owls and sawwets and all of the amazing work that you're doing, uh, you mentioned volunteers, and I'm sure if it's some people hearing this will be like, uh, how do I sign up to help band owls put their little backpacks on, get them ready? Um, so, uh, but now it's time for a special spotlight. It's the point of the show where you get to shine a light on something cool you saw in nature this month. And I'll have Amy go first. Well, I'm going to,
2: I'm going to st- Stick with our uh, theme today of talking a- about birds and bird banding. Um, I was able to go to Springfield and be a part of the Lincoln Land Bird Banders um Uh, banding station over there with Tony Rothering and folks Um, and we did some of the stuff that you were talking about Mike um, we were able to go check the mist nets and Tony was able to I mean we got to see the birds we got to hold them in our hand and release them and he was able to share with us you know everyone loves to id birds and we try to id them you know by sound and we try to id them by by binocular but when you when you ban them you have them in your hand um, and it was really neat to see all the different ways that he and the the crew used to identify uh, and and maybe even um you know determine if they're male or female uh whether it was like blowing on the feathers to see the the different colors of their crests on the top of their head um and just seeing birds that you don't get to see um, but far away right up close so that was kind of a neat experience and I think they were I think maybe at Lincoln Lane Community College possibly they were talking about doing some saw wet owl netting misnetting um in the coming I guess weeks at that point in time so that was a few weeks back but but anyway it was a really cool experience
1: that's so cool I um that's one experience I never really got in college and that I've never done actually is to like um help band a bird or even hold a bird um in my hand like that because I know I always see like the picture I'm sure I'm talking to the crowd here who has apparently because Amy's just admitted and obviously Mike has so I'm (laughs) I feel a little left out today but uh (laughs) so that's so cool um I love that, like, I don't know, just kind of seeing that you get to, they get to the point out and be like, yeah, this is the feature that makes this type of sparrow, this type or whatever. And that's mm-hmm. so neat. So, well, Mike, you're up next.
0: Yeah, as, as much as I'd like to keep talking about owls, this time of year, what's really kind of fascinating, um, you know, as I, I sit here at, at Turner Hall, looking out the window from the fourth floor is, you know, as, as the evening starts to, starts to come, and it seems like it just comes you know, earlier and earlier every day on campus here a phenomenon we've had for several years is that just large flocks of crows start to gather and form just these huge roosts for the night and it's really fascinating to watch all their acrobatics in the sky and how they come in their various different groups i mean crows are just such smart birds and and uh, there's so much we don't know about them and and I mean this just barely scratches the surface, but being able to watch that phenomenon as, as the sun starts to go down and you know it really makes you wonder, you know what it, what all is at play? Where are these birds even from? Because I mean crows, there are many, many more crows here this time of year than people realize uh, and then other times of the year. They have migrated some of them usually from points north. And you know uh, it's so hard for us to tell just on a very surface level as we look up. What individuals are from here? Where did that crow come from? Where is it going back? And and where are they going to roost? So many really neat questions about, you know, a bird that a lot of times people just dismiss as, oh, it's just a large black drab bird, but um, so many mysteries to unlock.
2: I had a, um, I guess, a student at a camp that I worked at and she was just an exceptional student and her, they're part of the Corvid family, right?
0: Right. right.
2: Corb- a, corvid. Mm-hmm. She would be, she loved, she's like anything in the corvid family. I am just a fan of any, they're smart, they're, I mean, she was just a fanatic about um, the corvid family of birds. And I thought that was just very interesting because she was like a, you know, 14, 15 year old, um, mm-hmm. to have that kind of, you know, interest. I thought it was kind of, kind of cool and unique.
1: Yeah, I feel like that, Um, though, like that's where the niche starts, right? Like it's like the dinosaur version of like kids yeah. too. They're like, I'm obsessed with this specific species of dinosaur, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's true. fun. I was just going to say too, Mike, I feel like uh, ask us in two years, like we'll check in with you in two years. You might be studying crows instead of yeah. sawwets. <laughs> yeah. <So. laughs>
0: yeah, I like all types of birds, that's for sure. And, and it's always interesting to see the commonalities from one species or one group to another or lack thereof like I said when we can when we're talking about migration and it's always, you know mm-hmm. <laughs> the ones that don't obey the rule <laughs> right true
1: well um I will go mine is not bird related I am not a bird person I've I just I don't know what it is about bird calls it's like I cannot hear the differences in a lot of them I really struggle so um but I'm gonna talk about something way more mundane and less cool than you two both shared um i have like a little garden in my backyard and i planted time a year ago it's not a native plant but it's still nature because it's growing outside (laughs) and and um i went to go make myself um Uh, chicken pot pie it's like my favorite recipe and it's a it calls for time and i was like i wonder if my time is still good and it's still green it's the middle of december and it's still green and i'm gonna eat it and so i was just so shocked to and i like haven't gotten a chance to look into like what the heck is going on with time that it survives these kinds of free freezing weathers and and temperature changes and things like that that it is the only green thing in my garden Right now outside of weeds, which makes me a little concerned about the fact that I planted it in the ground as well. So um so yeah, so that's my little spotlight. Cause I just could I just thought it was really amazing and now I can still use it as a plant right now. So
2: mm-hmm. very interesting.
1: Well, um this has been another episode of Spotlight on Natural Resources podcast. Thank you so much, Mike, for taking the time to chat with us. Check out next month, where we'll talk with Peggy and about phenology. It'll be a whole new year, 2024.